0: Our topic out of the book of Ezekiel tonight is that of Ezekiel chapter 16, Unwanted, Adopted, and Atoned For. Pretty graphic in this chapter, uh, the allusions and illustrations that God gives to uh, Ezekiel. Starting in verse 1, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1, The word of the Lord said, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. So the origins of Jerusalem, the origins of Israel, out of Canaan. On the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes, No eye pitied you to have compassion on you, but you were thrown into the open field, you were loathed on the day you were born. Not a great description, but a pretty accurate description. Abraham's called to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and he comes to a land. He's not wanted there. He he's just uh, uh, just comes there alone, empty, with just his immediate family and, the, and those that serve him, and uh, just wandering around, and same with Jacob, and, or Esau, uh, Isaac and Jacob, and then um, just left there, alone, unaccepted, as nothing. When I passed by you, I saw you struggling in your own blood. I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. And so we went to Egypt and there we multiplied and, God saw us there and he took us out of Egypt and brought us into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. And when I passed by you again, I looked upon you. Indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine, says the Lord God. Now we see in this imagery that God is painting here he's playing several different roles right so first he, he's the adoptive father of of this abandoned child and now here he is the uh, groom to to this mature bride and of course in you know that's unkosher biblically to do that but God plays many roles through this chapter and God plays many roles in our lives that's why God has many names and what's all the different hats God wears and and all the different characteristics and abilities he has. So, so, of course, we're not to take this literally or anything like that, right, or to make an application for our own personal lives from this, but we just see God playing different roles as, as Israel has grown and matured. I washed you in water. I washed off your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth. I gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists, and a chain on your neck. And so God covers us in his righteousness and, and decorates us with his glory and his beauty and his holiness and his talents and his abilities and, and his honor and his faith and faithfulness and, and strength and, and goodness. And so he covers us and he adorns us with his beauty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I bestowed on you, says the Lord God. It's an important aspect here, it is God's splendor, he has made us perfect, it was perfect through my splendor. God makes us perfect, God makes us what we are. Started from nothing, started as an abandoned child, laying there in the sand and blood and God found us and raised us up. God nurtured us and blessed us and God protected us and held on to us. God makes us to what we are, covers us and calls us His own, gives us His glory. It's His splendor that is given to us, that makes us what we are. But you trusted in your own beauty played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone who would have it. So we start feeling good, we start coasting along, we start looking good, the other nations around us are jealous, David's kingdom is spreading, Solomon's kingdom is magnificent, the temple is being built in Jerusalem, and we start taking the glory to ourselves, and start boasting of our accomplishments, and instead of God's righteousness, we claim our righteousness. We start thinking, oh, we've accomplished some things, and we think we're doing pretty good. We think we can accomplish some things, and we're pretty smart. We've got some strengths, we've got some talents. And we start showing them off and decorating ourselves with our own righteousness, which the Bible describes as nothing but filthy rags. Trying to draw attention to ourselves instead of to the glory and splendor of God. You have taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourselves male images and played the harlot with them. I chose not to include a picture For that slide. Though the artifacts and ancient artifacts that have been found testify of the word of God and the fall that we have experienced and the degradation. So we take God's glory, God's righteousness, God's splendor, God's beauty that he adorns us with, God's covering of faith and his righteousness and We trample it underfoot and defame it and abuse it and try and cover ourselves in our own righteousness and our own good deeds. And today we are no better. We can look at this and say how bad they fell and how horrible they were. And today I think we're even worse. Taking the grace of God... And abusing it even worse than this. Treating it as cheap. As something to be played with. As something to be misused. As something to be abused. We accept the mercy and forgiveness of God. And instead of allowing that to reform our lives, we take it for granted. And then we boast of our salvation in God and our acceptance in God. And when he looks at our filthy rags and our boasting and our selfishness and our pride and our arrogance and he sees how we've trampled his grace and neglected it, it's even worse than what's been done here. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter? That you have slain my children and offered them up to them to be, by causing them to pass through the fire? And here again today we take people, as the Bible says, go to the end of the earth to find one person to bring to God. And we make them more a child of the devil than they were before. By making people feel good about themselves. Telling them, oh, God's forgiveness covers all your sins and not asking their lives to be reformed and changed. It's just an empty forgiveness, an empty grace. Just a past action of what God did for us in the past but neglects what God can do for us and in us now and today. And thus then we take our children, spiritual children and our physical children, and we're sacrificing them to the world. Telling them not to leave the world, not to depart from the world, but it's okay to keep one foot in the world as long as we profess God. As long as we make some kind of statements. As long as once in a while we serve Him in some way, shape, or form. With a little time here and a little offering here and little of our abilities here, and once in a while, acknowledgement of Him, and a past profession of Him, and that's all that matters. And we sacrifice them to the things of this world. Instead of leaving the world and departing from the world and coming out of the world and being separate from the world, we stay in the world And allow the world to stay in us. And yet we think we're better than those around us. Verse 22, and we're not reading all the verses in this chapter. There's a lot of verses in this chapter. In all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and struggling in your blood. And that's our same problem today. We forget where we were. We forget what we were when God found us, when God called us, when God changed us, when God transformed us. We think we're okay now. We think we're pretty good now. We're better than we used to be. But in reality, we're still just as we always were. This past week, we, my family, we re-watched the, uh, the movie The Hiding Place, Kemp, Corey Temboom's story, and there's one scene in there. She's in the, the the prison camp, the work camp, concentration camp, Nazi camp, and um, and they bring uh, a bunch of harlots in there as well, and they're prisoners there as well. And as well, and Corey's sister uh, Betsy goes over to to some of them and starts talking with them. And one of them says to him, "What are you doing here with the trash?" And Betsy's answer was, We're all trash. We're all trash. We need to remember where we came from. From dust we came, and from dust we go. We bring nothing into this world, and we bring nothing out of it. Anything that we are, and anything that we do, and anything we can do, is only because of the splendor that God places upon us. In and of ourselves, We are nothing, and without him we can do nothing. We're carnal in our nature, and all our desires and all our motives are nothing but filthiness and a base and and against God, hatred towards God. When we forget where we come from, we forget where we're going. And we get self-satisfied in the here and now. And we then plateau. And really, instead of plateauing, our lives really not growing and not becoming more and more sanctified and not really changing much anymore, we're really actually backsliding. We're not gaining ground. We're not growing continually towards heaven and towards the Lord in righteousness and abilities and talents and gifts. Then we're losing What we gained by God's grace. And so they've forgotten, and I think today we have forgotten as well. Now, at the same time, we remember we are nothing and worse than nothing, trash. At the same time, we remember that God found us in our barren state abandoned, forsaken, tossed aside, dying in our own blood. Their cords not cut, but God found us, and God loved us. Not because of ourselves, not because of any beauty in us, not because of anything we could give back to him, but he loved us, and he adopted us, and he claims us, and he nurtured us, and he cleansed us, And he raised us and changed us, transformed us, molded us and made us and married us and has given us his name, crowned us with his crown, covered us with his robe, hid us under his wings and because of that we have value, ultimate value, everlasting value. To God, we are worth more than the entire universe. That's what God put on the line. When Satan captured us and challenged God to come and take us back, all Satan had to offer was this filthy, dirty planet and the sinful humans on it. But God put down on the table all of the universe. Because if Yeshua would have lost the battle against the devil, if he would have compromised, if he would have yielded, if he would have sinned in any way, shape, or form, from birth through temptation through the end, if he would have yielded at any point, Satan would have won, not just this earth. But he would have won God's throne. He would have won the universe. And God would have been cast out. So you are worth more to God than all the universe. We are worth more to God than himself. He was willing to leave his throne and to be cast out. And surrender it to the devil. For you and for me. And that is where our worth is. That is where our security is. That is where our stability is. That is where our hope is. That is where our trust is. That is where our beauty is. That's God worth. Which is worth a whole lot more than self worth. Because self worth will not get us anywhere. Other than falling and failing once again when our worth is in God's purchase of us, we are worth more than anything on this earth or in the universe. And there's nothing on this earth worth sacrificing that for. He's going to sit us on his throne with him. Co-heirs with him. Co-inheritors with him. With the universe as our backyard. That's what gives us something to stand for, not our own works, our own deeds. You committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Yet you were not like the harlot because you scorn payment. You're an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to harlots, but you make your payments to all your lovers and hire them to come to you from all around for your harlotry. Totally upside down, worse than a harlot, worse than an adulteress. Paying to be abused and misused. And we do the same when we sell ourselves out to the world when we open ourselves up to temptation, when we give ourselves to the devil, when we yield to any temptation and sin, we deny God's power and God's victory in our lives. We deny God's ability to give us victory in every area. Oh, we've gained some victories by his strength and by his power, but if we yield in any area, then we deny that he has power to overcome all areas. And if he can't overcome all areas, then he can't overcome any area. And when we teach what we're going to fall and we're just going to keep falling anyway, we deny the power of God. And we're paying the world to just come in. We're paying the devil to just come and tempt us. We say, well, we're just weak and, and, and fallen humans and we're just going to fall again anyway and yield again anyway. We're paying the devil to come and tempt us again and giving up before he's even come and tempted us. We're not going to win that kind of battle, but when we walk through our life trusting in the Lord that he is more than enough to overcome all sin, there is nothing more powerful than God. He overcame in in the flesh, and he'll overcome through his spirit in us as well. And we go from victory to victory, marching on in his glory, and not yielding in any way to Satan's lies and not backing down and not falling. But he will keep us from falling and deliver us from all sin and temptation. I will judge you as a woman who breaks wedlock or sheds blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. So God, the adoptive father, The husband, but he's also the judge. And so while he has claimed us and while he has purchased us by his the blood of the Messiah, which he paid from the foundation of the world, where he loved us from before he even created the universe, before he even created this world, he loved us with an everlasting love. He had us on his mind. He had each one of us individually his name in our in his heart. And while he paid the price for us and died for the sins of the world, all of them, past, present, and future, if we spurn his grace, if we deny him and deny his power, when we deny his forgiveness or his deliverance, he will yet be judge as well. And while he favors us as a father and affectionate towards us like a husband, he will also have to be judge, And he will judge righteously and fairly. And Jerusalem was eventually destroyed by Babylon and then again by Rome. Because God is just and no respecter of persons. And that works both ways. Plays no favorites, loves equally, but also judges equally as well. I will give you into their hand and they will throw throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They will strip off your clothes and take your beautiful jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They will bring up an assembly against you and they will stone you with stones and thrust you through with swords. And that is what the world will do to us when we surrender to them, when we yield to them, when we compromise so that we can have a job, so that we can have a spouse, so that we can have some recognition, when we deny him before men so that we're not mocked, so that we're not rejected, when we're fearful of telling others about him, when we're fearful of living for him, when we compromise in the face of pressure and peer pressure and sometimes even no pressure. They will trample us underfoot. Oh, we might get the job for a while, we might get the fame for a while, we might get the acceptance for a while, but eventually those that sell themselves to the devil, the devil destroys. There's nothing in this world that's worth holding on to. And eventually the world will just fall on us and crush us anyway. And all the silver and gold and trinkets of this world rust and rot and fade away. Because you did not remember the days of your youth. Again, reminding us, important to remember where we came from. From dust we came, from nothing we came. Remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things. Surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God, and you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all your abominations. So because of this, God will judge and God will put an end to it. God will eventually stop our hypocrisy and not let us trample his name underfoot forever. He will judge and his judgment will start with the house of God. Your sister, and now he gets into a whole other analogy with this story. Your elder sister is Samaria who dwells with her daughters to the north. And your younger sister who dwells to the south is Sodom and her daughters. You did not walk in their ways nor according to their abominations. But... As if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. How did Israel, how did Jerusalem become more corrupt than Sodom and her daughters? How did it become more corrupt than Samaria and her daughters? Because where much is given much is expected. And while Sodom's sins might have been worse as far as the world standard, according to God, we who have had great privileges will be held to a higher accountability. We who have the Word of God and who know better and should know better will be judged accordingly. And not only we who have the word of God, but we who have an opportunity to have the word of God will be held accountable to the opportunities that we've had. And if we neglect the opportunities that we have to know God and follow God, we will be held accountable to what we have had available to us. And thus, while they were worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up in the judgment against this generation and judge this generation, because this generation has had more knowledge than any generation before it. We have so much more of the Scriptures. We had the Messiah come. We saw Him come. We saw His birth. We saw His life. We saw His death. We have the writings after it. We have the history since then. We have the power of God, the Word of God available to us in so many different forms and so many different versions. We can have it on our phone, in our fingertips, all with us all the time. And yet we're not living any better. In many ways worse. Denying his power, denying his word, denying his law, denying his sacrifice, denying his redemption, denying his victory, denying his power, And leaving those of Sodom and her daughters and Samaria and her daughters to die for themselves. We're not going out and witnessing. We're not transforming the world. We're not warning the world. We're not telling the world. We're holding it to ourselves. Self-satisfied. And in some ways, that's the worst sin of all. We're not living it and we're not sharing it. And thus we're worse than worst the world. Oh, again, according to certain standards, oh, we may not do some of the horrible things they do. We may not speak some of the words they speak. We may not do some of the acts that they do. But unless we're living up to the calling that God has called us. If we're in ninth grade, we don't compare ourselves with, the, with a fourth grader. Or a kindergartner will be judged according to the test that's given to the ninth grader. And we'll be held to that standard. So we compare ourselves, not with ourselves, not with others, but with God's grace and God's truth and God's goodness. God's power. God's abilities. God's splendor that he wants to cover us with, that he wants to fill us with. I will deal with you as I have done, who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Now we're up to verse 59 here in this chapter. And he mentions covenant here. He's going to mention covenant a few more times. We don't have time to get into the whole teaching of covenant through the Bible. We did that a few weeks ago, and we looked at Jeremiah chapter 31. And if you want to review that, you can go to shalomadventure.com. In the little search part, you can type in uh, Jeremiah 31, Old Covenant, New Covenant, and it'll bring it up there for you. And you can review that again and watch that again. But I will deal with you as you have done who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Which covenant did we break? We broke our covenant to God. God, I will follow you. God, I will serve you. God, I will surrender my life to you. God, I will walk in your ways. Whatever you say, that we will do. And Moses was gone for six weeks. And even before then, we had forsaken God and denied him. And turned his gold and his silver into licentiousness. And we broke his laws. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Powerful words. He spends 59 verses just painting the picture of how horrible we are. And we look at the scriptures, that's the balance it gives us. We look at most preaching today, and it mostly pats on the back, telling us how great we are. Instead of reminding us of where we've come from, and what we really are. And what God really is and what god places upon us so it's not about us it's not because of us but nevertheless i will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth i will establish an everlasting covenant with you it's god's work what god does god has established an everlasting covenant with us it's god's covenant that counts it's god's promises that counts not our promises Our promises are empty. Our promises are worthless. Our promises are like grabbing onto a rope made out of sand. It falls apart. But God's promises are everlasting promises. And if God's promises are everlasting promises, it means they last forever. And not only do they last forever, it means they had no beginning. It means they go from the beginning of time. He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. His everlasting covenant was not necessarily with Moses, his everlasting covenant was not with David, his everlasting covenant did not come to Yeshua, did not come after Yeshua's death or after Yeshua's resurrection. It's not a covenant given to Abraham. It's not a covenant given to Adam. It's a covenant that goes way back to the very beginning. It's a covenant that God made with himself before he created humanity that I will love them and I will be with them and I will not forsake them and I will never leave them. That is God's covenant. And he will hold to his covenant. He will not back down on his covenant. He will not break his covenant. And he will see it through to the end. And that is where our hope is in what God does, not in what we can do. What he can do in us, and what he can do through us, and what he can do for us. That is where our hope is. That is his promise, his everlasting covenant. I will write my laws in your hearts and in your minds. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will walk in these ways. You will live them out. Because I will live in you, saith the Lord God. His everlasting covenant to be our father, to be our husband, to be our help, to be our heart, to be our mind, to be our legs, to fill us with his spirit and empower us and transform us and change us. And that is our goal, that is our focus, that is our hope, that is where our eyes need to be on God and his promises. That he is able to keep us from falling. That the work that he began, he will bring to completion. His everlasting, his powerful promises. That he has paid for us. That he has forgiven us. And that he has transformed us. And that his splendor is placed upon us and that his glory is lived out through us. And nevertheless, regardless of how we've lived, Nevertheless, he is there and always is there. But he's also judge, And if we deny it and forsake it and reject it, we will be judged accordingly. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older sister and your younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters but not because of my covenant with you. This is a very interesting verse, verse 61. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. When we realize God's everlasting covenant, when we stop relying on our own covenant, on our own promises, on our own glory, on our own righteousness, on our own abilities, when we stop trying to be good enough, When we stop boasting about ourselves, when we stop being so selfish about everything, when we stop being so self centered, when we surrender all and remember God's covenant, we will be ashamed. When we remember where we've come from, when we remember that we're nothing but dust and have been and always are without God, then we will be ashamed and we will come to repentance. And loathe our sinfulness, our every motive, and surrender it before God, being ashamed before Him. Or remember our ways, and be ashamed. That's a good place to be. Again, much of the preaching of this world is doesn't bring us to a shame. Oh, shame! Shame's bad. Don't make them feel shameful. Don't make them feel bad about themselves. Don't bring them to conviction. Make them feel good about themselves. But God's word, when we remember God's word and God's everlasting covenant and God's promises, when we remember our lives in relation to that, we are ashamed and we come and repent before him. And then we receive our older sister and our younger sister. And God gives them to us for daughters. But not because of his covenant with us. So why does he give us Sodom? And why does he give us Samaria? And why does he give us their daughters? If it's not because of his covenant with us. It's because. And so who are they? Who are Sodom? Who is Samaria? Obviously the ones who don't know God, right? Samaria to the north, who should have known God, who had the ability to know God, who were surrounded there by Judah and by Israel and Sodom, totally abased from God and rejecting God, this world and the things of this world and the people of this world. So why will God remember them and why will he give them to Israel? as sisters, with their daughters. And I should point out here before we explain more about Sodom and Samaria, we notice here this woman, Jerusalem, this young child, abandoned, and then grown up, and then the bride of God, and then rejects him, but he holds on to, we see here, he doesn't divorce her, He doesn't cast her out. He doesn't execute her. He doesn't replace her with a second wife. He stays hold to her. He remains faithful to her. There's no second woman here. There's no second wife that he takes on. He remains faithful to her. And those that teach that God's people, Israel, has been replaced... Missing the whole point of this chapter of what God does to Jerusalem, what God does to his people. So then how then does Sodom and Samaria come into it? Why not with the covenant that God made to Jerusalem, the covenant that God made to Israel? Why does he give them as sisters if not because of his covenant with Israel? Because of his covenant to the Gentiles. God has covenant to the Gentiles. Israel, I will make you a light to the Gentiles and I will bring them in as well and I will make them co-heirs with you because if Israel is the daughter of God and their sisters are Sodom and Gomorrah, if they're it's Sodom and Samaria, if they are sisters of Israel and Israel's father is God, then who is Sodom and Samaria's father? But if they are sisters of, of, of Israel and Israel is God, if God is... Israel's father and their sisters. He's their father as well. God is their father as well. Again, God is no respecter of persons. God loves them all. And if they're all three sisters together, then they're equal sisters together. They're co-inheritors together. They're all equal together. And God brings us all together under one tent together, as one family together, as sisters together, united together, not one better than the other, not one more important than the other. To one, he gave his law. To one, he gave the responsibility of sharing the law and the word of God with the, with the sisters around, with the nations around. That doesn't make them any better. And her sins don't make her any worse. Because it's God's covenant and God's redemption upon all people. He counts all as sin, that he might have forgiveness upon all. That he may redeem all. And so he transforms Israel and he brings in Samaria and he brings in Sodom and all their daughters. And he brings us together, all who will turn to him, all who will surrender to him. Thus all Israel shall be saved, that all God's people will be saved. That all who turn to him, that all who confess him, that all who surrender to him shall be his children and live according to that grace and that power and that name and thus we're all equal together because of his covenant with Israel and because of his covenant with the world that he would bring them in as well no longer outcast but fellow citizens with the people of God verse 62 and i will establish my covenant with you then you shall know that i am the lord that you remember and be ashamed And so again he reminds us, and again he reminds us of his covenant, and again he reminds us of where we've been, and again it brings us to a shame that we never leave that state. When we know our calling and high calling and high value in God, we always remember where we are and what we are without him. And it's that balance of both that keeps us from going back into the world or thinking of ourselves better than we should and at the same time keeping us from being debased and feeling horrible because we know what God says about us and what God thinks about us and our value in God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. We will never open our mouth again in boasting, never open our mouth in self-exaltation, never opening our mouths in excuses anymore for our sins and our shortcomings, no more in denying of God's power and opening our mouths in denying of him or blaming of others or blaming of him or blaming someone else. No more excuses, no more words. Just surrender and acceptance of his grace and of his goodness and of his love. When he provides an atonement for us. And the word atonement there is the same word, the root of it that we get the word, the day of atonement from. Yom Kippur. God's atoning for us. God's forgiving of us. God's judging of us. And God founding us righteous in him because of his covering. Where the ultimate Yom Kippur takes place, where the ultimate judgment takes place. And God delivers us once and for all. Because he's placed his name upon us. Because he's placed his words into us. Because his spirit has come inside us and lived out through us. He has atoned us. He has made us at one with him. At one atonement. At one with him. No longer separated. No longer just a child. But now, the bride of Messiah united with him, surrendered to him, serving him, and at one with him. And walking on into glory with him. And inheriting an eternity with him. That's his calling upon us. It's a beautiful chapter of God's mercy and God's grace. And it's a wake-up call to the reality of what we are without him. As we pray together, have you fallen into self-exaltation and self-satisfaction, coasting along in your own righteousness? As we grow closer to God, we should see ourselves in more of a need of him the closer we come to him, the more we know that we don't know. The closer we come to him, the more we see our defects. Not the better we feel. And if it's been a while since you felt ashamed and surrendered to him, you've been just coasting along, feeling good about yourself, self-satisfied in your walk with him, and not growing in him. In a moment when we pray, you can surrender that to him and let him remind us of where we've come from and what we really are at heart. Secondly, if you've exalted yourself in your mind over others, whether you believed in replacement theology, that you have replaced Israel and that somehow you're better than Israel or that because you're Israel, you're somehow better than the others. Either way is a pit. Either way is an empty and and a lie. We're all nothing, only because of God, and all because of God, we're all equal. And so if you've been exalting one or exalting yourself, or putting down one, in order to exalt yourself. I want to surrender that to the Lord. In the moment when we pray, you can give over that false theologies. Whether making Israel everything or making Israel nothing, in reality, Israel is, as it was mentioned in this chapter, abandoned, nothing, dead, laying in her blood, atoned for, married, but an adulteress, and claimed only by the grace of God. And that's what we all are, only by the grace of God. Thirdly, if you haven't cared about Samaria and Sodom, if you haven't cared about the world around us, if your heart doesn't break for them, if we're not concerned for the lost, if we're not concerned for those who don't know God, if we're we're condemning and judging and written them off, God wants us to come together as one. He wants us to adopt them and to share with them, to love them and witness to them, that we all might be sisters together under God's grace and under God's hand. Fourth, if we've been abusing God's grace, turning it into idols and using it in abusive ways, hiding under the term grace to claim some forgiveness without repentance, without a change in heart and a change in life, claiming an empty forgiveness that doesn't have the power to keep us from sinning anymore, taking God's word and trampling it that way. Denying of His power to give us victory over all temptation, making us worse than Sodom, and just abusing and walking over His grace. If we've been doing that, and the moment when we pray, you can surrender that to the Lord and accept His forgiveness and accept His power accept his word, accept his promises, accept his covenant that he will keep us, that he will deliver us, that we overcome by the word of the Lord, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony. We can overcome be overcomers in him and under him. So if any of those areas apply to you or maybe some other area God's been speaking to your heart and mind about, Have you been ashamed of your sins and you want to accept God's forgiveness and God's grace and God's love as well? Let us come before him and surrender all to him and accept all that he has for us. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you, Lord, for your mercy towards us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you that you've looked down upon us and you have redeemed us, you have raised us, you have cleansed us, you've molded us, you've made us. Thank you for claiming us as your own. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you for marrying us. Thank you for letting us sit on your throne with you. Thank you for raising us into heavenly places in Yeshua the Messiah. Thank you, Yeshua, for your death and your forgiveness. Thank you for your spirit. Change us and mold us and make us. Live in us and through us and for us. For your honor, for your glory, in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.